1: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to remind you all that while we are watching you, they are watching us. Here is the captain.
2: It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are very happy
1: to be featuring Daycation by one of the very best in the beer making business, Highland Brewing in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. This is a hoppy floral sessions IPA that is up and down for anything. Daycation is light bodied with stone fruit, and citrus garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five and captain you know who wishes that they were skipping work on a beer drinking vacation well it's these fine folks right here first up a cheers to carrie sending us some love from the lbc
2: and a big we like your jib to kelly in greenville south carolina
1: next here's a cheers to Lori and the parts of dallas unknown and a big shout-out to
2: Douglas in Henderson, Kentucky.
1: Next, we have Christina in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And last but certainly not least, we have Lifer in Pasadena, California. Everyone we just mentioned, they helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you.
2: Yeah, BWE Double R U N Beer Run. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, check out our bonus show called Off the Record, and that's exclusively... On Stitcher Premium, but all of our episodes, all of our old episodes, almost 500 episodes are available wherever you get podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to True Crime Garage and make sure you tell a friend. And Colonel, that is enough of the business.
1: All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. December 26th, the day after Christmas, 1985, Deborah Ann Wolf is a 28-year-old nurse at the VA Hospital in Fayetteville, North Carolina. She worked the first shift as normal. During the shift, she had lunch with Roger Rushing, a co-worker. She called her mom, Jenny Edwards, around 3:30, asking for gift suggestions for her sister-in-law's birthday. It was in every way a routine day. Debbie clocked out at 4 p.m. And it is presumed that she went straight home, a 15 to 20 minute drive. The next day, Friday, December 27th, Debbie did not show up for her 8 a.m. shift at the hospital. This was not just unusual. It was totally out of character. Her supervisors at the hospital called her house and got no answer. Her mom, Jenny, called the hospital at midday and was told that Debbie never arrived at work. Jenny tried Debbie at her home, but she did not answer the phone. Jenny sent her husband, John Edwards, and their friend, Kevin Gordon, over to Debbie's house. When John and Kevin got to the house, Debbie's car was there, with her Christmas presents still inside the vehicle. They found Debbie's dogs roaming outside. The kitchen door was locked, but the living room door was unlocked. Inside, the electric heater was on. Articles of clothing lie on the kitchen floor. It seemed that Debbie was nowhere on the property. John and Kevin assumed that Debbie had left with someone, possibly in a hurry, and would be back. They fed the dogs, turned down the heater, and left. The next day, John returned to the cabin again. He found the dog bowls empty, and still no sign of Debbie. Everything was the way John had left it the day before. He walked the property, saw nothing unusual, and then left. But things were unusual, because Debbie was close with her family, and yet no one knew where she was. To this day, so many questions remain unanswered. This is True Crime Garage. And this is The Mysterious Case of Debbie Wolf. Today we are going back to just after Christmas 1985 near Fayetteville, a well-populated all-American city in the beautiful state of North Carolina. Debbie Wolfe lived alone with her two dogs, Mason and Morgan, in a small one-level home 100 yards off of MacArthur Road, just about four miles outside of Fayetteville. This is a rustic cabin surrounded by tall pine trees and no neighbors. At the time, Debbie was driving a 1975 Pontiac that belonged to her mother. Debbie was at work on December 26th and then life as they say it turns on a dime because 24 hours later she does not show up for work and she cannot be located. Her stepfather and family friend go to check on her and finding one door to her cabin unlocked and the dogs roaming the property. Note that the dogs were outside dogs. They always stayed outside. They were roped to a stake during the day when Debbie was at work, and at night they roamed freely. By Sunday, her family was starting to become seriously alarmed. John Edwards, Dave Thomason, and Kevin Gordon went to the cabin to take a more thorough look. Looking under the bed, Kevin located Debbie's purse. It was wedged into a corner of the waterbed. This being an odd place, in my opinion, to find one's purse. But nothing else seemed suspicious. There was no sign of any struggle or any type of confrontation. So again, they left the property. On Monday, Debbie once again did not show up to work. Jenny, her mother, decided it was time to call the authorities. This is the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office. Captain Jack Watts, the Cumberland County Sheriff, responded to take a report and a photo of Debbie. But he didn't show the level of concern that Jenny felt was warranted. She gathered a group of friends and they met up at Debbie's cabin and decided they were going to walk the property looking for clues to where she possibly could be. They hiked through the woods that surrounded the small retention pond behind the house and found nothing. By 4.30 p.m., Jenny and John were back home at their house when Detective William Nichols showed up and said that they planned to search Debbie's cabin and property the following day. Well, it's nice of them to let them know, hey, we're going to search tomorrow tomorrow, One thing I never understand in these cases here, captain, and we've seen this time and time again, where, especially when we talk about cases from the seventies and eighties, there seems to be a lack of concern when someone isn't where they are supposed to be. They're reported missing. I get that they are waiting for it to become an official missing person's case. As many people often turn up within an hour or a couple hours later. Right. However, I've never understood why they can't just go, okay, we've taken your report. We'll swing by their property and take a a look around, you know, maybe peek in a window or walk the property or try calling the house, anything. I mean, you're on duty at the time. You have to fill up your day and your hours with tasks. Why not just go and briefly look for the person?
2: And the land that this cabin sits on, do you know how much property they actually own?
1: I think it was a few acres, but from my understanding, Captain, the pond was quite small. I think what gets a little difficult to understand here where her property and just how big her property actually was is that there are no neighbors surrounding her. So it's not easy for one to look at the property all these years later and determine just how big her property was.
2: But also the pictures there, and there's only a couple pictures of the property online. It looks like it's lined with woods. So that would be make it a little bit harder to decipher.
1: That's correct. And they did, this case was featured on unsolved mysteries back in the day. I believe it was season three, one of the later episodes in that season And so the reenactments, I'm not certain, Captain, if they were filmed at the actual location or not. But I've seen that episode, and it certainly just adds more to the mystery. Now, as planned, the next day, the sheriff's deputies did arrive to scout the house in the surrounding area. They conducted a search of the cabin and property, looking for Debbie, any clues. In their opinion, nothing was amiss. There was no signs of a struggle or anything concerning to the officers. Bloodhounds were brought into the scene, and they didn't find anything as well. Really, Deputies did not search the pond on the property. They told John, her stepfather, that there was no indication that anything would be found in the water. Now, Jenny was so concerned about Debbie, and... At such a loss to explain her disappearance that she asked Kevin, this is a family friend, to help. And Kevin called his buddy, this is Sergeant Gordon Childress, who was an Army paratrooper stationed at nearby Fort Bragg. Anybody that's listened to this show for a while remembers us talking about Fort Bragg in the past. Childress was a scuba diver. And so he agreed to assist in the search for Debbie by diving into this retention pond behind her home. So he arrives at the cabin. This is 1230 PM on Wednesday. And after helping search the area, he gets on his scuba gear and he enters the water around 3 PM. Now by this time, captain, she's been missing for, I believe it's six days. If that math checks out, that's
2: a long time for her to be missing.
1: When he goes into the water, Okay, first he says the water's cold, it's murky water, but he's only in there for a couple minutes, and he pops back up and says he saw a body in the water.
2: Right, but like you said, it was a small pond.
1: Correct. At 3.30 p.m. on January 1st, 1986, the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office was called in, and the body was pulled from the shallow pond. The body in the pond was quickly determined to be that of Debbie Wolf. She was found fully clothed. The Fayetteville Observer reported that she was wearing Nike white leather shoes, ankle socks, and red knee socks, a black t-shirt, a brown checkered shirt, brown corduroy pants, blue underwear, and a new regulation army field jacket. The autopsy was performed by Dr. William Oliver, and it determined that she had drowned in the pond. This was based on a small amount of water found in one of her bronchial tubes. According to the sheriff's office spokesperson, no marks or other signs of struggle or violence were found on Debbie's body. There was no foul play. The autopsy ruled. The Fayetteville Gazette reported that there were some bruising, but nothing to definitively prove she either had or had not been assaulted. Right. And there was no evidence of sexual assault. A toxicology report found no drugs or alcohol in Debbie's system. And although no one was sure when Debbie had died, the date of death was fixed at December 26th, 1985.
2: Now, do we know how deep this pond gets?
1: Yes, I've heard Jenny Edwards describe the pond. She describes it as a small but not too small pond. Her, her, de- her definition of this pond's a little confusing. It's small but not too small. It's not mm-hmm. deep, but it's deep in spots. I right. have one report that states that the deepest spot is believed to be about five and a half feet.
2: So it's possible we have Debbie on her property by herself. doesn't make a lot of sense why she would go into the pond with her clothes on and a jacket on and shoes on.
1: In December. But
2: But it's possible that she went in for some reason and had an accident and she died in the pond and she drowned.
1: One thing we're going to find in this case, Captain, is the lack of information. I'm saying lack of information because I'm hoping that they did, they being the sheriff's department, did some more work on the case than what is publicly available. Now, one thing we've seen in other cases involving water, one thing that they're quick to do, and mind you, they did this in the West Memphis 3 investigation, which we saw how botched that thing was. One thing that they did at least did in that investigation is you take the temperature of the water, okay? When you find a body right. in or out of water, you're going to take the temperature of the body, but when you find a body in the water, you want to know the temperature of the water as well because that will contribute to to, to the state of the body as you find it. I also want to point out something here as well, Captain, with the date of death. Uh-huh. We need to be clear here. There was no determination absolutely when this young woman died. They put the date of death on the death certificate as December 26th. In most states, the ruling is that it can be up to the family. You can put the date of death when it's undetermined as when the person went missing or when they were found. So that, you know, often becomes up to the family. I don't know if they were asked in this particular case, but that's the date that they gave, gave it. Mm -hmm. Um, This makes me think of the Delphi case, where if you look at the date of death, they give one date to one of the victims and the next day as the date to the other victim. And a lot of people point out that that means, Oh, they know something. They know one girl was killed on this day and the other girl was killed on The following day. That's not true. It's just the date that was chosen by the families. A 1988 article, we're going to jump ahead here uh, a year or two and then jump back. But a 1988 article in the Fayetteville Observer archives that has been largely ignored in this case, probably because it's behind a paywall and it doesn't come up in any internet searches, contains some what I believe to be crucial information. And it says. The death certificate filed on February 24th, 1986 lists the cause of death as pending and the determination of the death as a murder, suicide, undetermined, or natural causes also pending. A supplemental report lists the cause of death as drowning. Undetermined is typed in the blank where the medical examiner is required to state whether the date was due to accident, suicide, or homicide. So what do all those words mean? What that means is when they first did the autopsy, it was pending. The determination of death was pending, whether it was a murder, suicide, undetermined, or natural causes. It was later changed to say drowning, but the drowning was listed as undetermined meaning she died by drowning but could not determine if it was due to an accident a suicide or homicide
2: yeah because we don't like you said we have some bruising but we don't have any puncture wounds we don't have clear-cut indication that she was strangled do we have a clear-cut distance between the the cabin and this pond
1: from my understanding it's fairly close to the back of the cabin Mm -hmm. the thing here that i'm pointing out with the death certificate with the autopsy is that there's no way given what it states on the report that the sheriff's office can then say well we did what we could there's no homicide to investigate here because it was ruled an accident it was it was ruled a drowning but never determined why the drowning happened That article goes on to say that Dr. William Oliver conducted an autopsy and after lengthy delay, mind you, the last time this woman was seen was on the 26th of December. The death certificate was filed on February 24th, almost two full months later. Doctors stated that the body had undergone changes characteristic of cold water drowning or immersion syndrome in which death is believed to occur from cardiac arrest. He said he found no evidence of beating, stabbing, shooting, or strangulation on the body. Now, this is interesting because this is something we've not discussed here in the garage before. But from what I've been told, immersion syndrome is a phenomenon in which sudden cardiac arrest is brought on by immersion into icy cold water. It is believed that sudden immersion in freezing water can, in some people, cause the body to go into shock and possibly even cardiac arrest, resulting in death. Cumberland County Sheriff's detectives ruled Debbie's cause of death accidental by drowning. So that was the determination by the sheriff's office. So who was our victim? Well, Debbie Wolfe, she was born in June of 1957 in Arkansas. She had three brothers, Pete, Joseph, and John. The family moved to North Carolina after reportedly living in England for some time. Debbie's mom, Jenny, remarried John Edwards, and Jenny owned a local bar in Fayetteville called The Pub. Debbie had been a nurse for about two years at the time of her death. She loved her job, and she was known to be dependable, responsible, and dedicated. She was also a jokester with a wicked sense of humor. She sent her mom a male stripper for her 50th birthday and an inflatable novelty doll for Christmas just the day before she was last seen. On the day after Christmas, she went to work at the hospital toting a giant stuffed unicorn, that she received as a gift. She was known as a happy person and had no known enemies. Debbie also had a serious boyfriend. Now, one report we read said that they had recently decided to step up their relationship. By all accounts, Debbie was a happy person in a good place in her life at the time that she went missing and then later was found dead in the Sorry, they're
2: saying that they're, they're more than boyfriend and girlfriend That that, that she might have been This individual's fiance.
1: I don't know if they were that far, but that's from what I found, it was getting pretty serious. Mm. Now, Debbie was found at the bottom of the pond behind her house. Captain, you asked just how far it was. The pond from my notes was about 100 yards from her cabin. But several publications, including the Asheville Citizens Times, reported that Gordon Childress, who dove into the pond in his scuba gear to find Debbie said that he saw through the murky and brackish water what looked like a body, fully clothed, protruding from a rusted metal barrel sitting at the bottom of the pond. So he's the one that finds Debbie initially in the pond. He says that when he found her, she is inside of this barrel. And she's in there like head first. So he could only see like a foot or maybe both feet sticking out of this barrel. Right. He went into the pond and he said, without touching anything or disturbing anything, he finds the body, the sheriff's office, their deputies arrive on the scene. They're going to put their own divers into the pond to recover the body. But Childress is going to assist them in this process. So he, along with two officers, recovered the body and brought it back to the bank.
2: I'm guessing at this point, rigor mortis has already set in on the body.
1: Yes, that would be correct. Again, we don't have a time or date of the actual death itself. Now, according to a Fayetteville observers, 1988 article, the one of the divers for the sheriff's office, this is Don Smith. And I'm going to do a direct quote here, quote told reporters. He also had seen the barrel. And Smith was filmed by a television cameraman as saying to Major Charles Smith of the barrel, Major, I saw that sucker right out there. He pointed to the spot where the body was found, end quote. And here's a report from the day after the body was found that said this was from the Wilson Daily Times, January 2nd. Quote, Cumberland County authorities are waiting for autopsy results on 28-year-old Deborah Wolfe, whose body was found in a barrel in a pond near her cabin on New Year's Day. A sheriff's spokesman says, Miss Wolfe, a registered nurse at the Veterans Administration Hospital, lived alone in a log cabin near the pond. Harold Little, spokesman for the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department, said today, Quote, I'm reasonably positive it will be investigated as a murder, but we're awaiting the results of the autopsy, Little said, adding there was no official indication of how she died. The woman's fully clothed body was found in a submerged barrel, Little said, but he wouldn't comment on reports that footprints had been found leading into the water. Miss Wolf's body was discovered by a friend who saw the footprints at the pond, put on scuba gear and found the barrel according to a news report. But little said he had no comment on the report.
2: But now that we have two officers saying that her body was found in this barrel, in this pond behind her house, any idea of an accidental death or suicide, not buying it no more. This barrel being put into place in the crime scene, this is a direct indication of foul play.
1: While your subscription is active.
2: All right, we're back, friends. Cheers to all of you.
1: Cheers, Captain. The day after they were moved. Debbie's body, deputies returned to the cabin to retrieve the barrel. In an effort to find the barrel, deputies drained the pond to a level of two to three feet. No barrel was found. Major Charles Smith, chief of detectives at the time, told the media that there was no barrel in the pond. Sheriff's divers never saw a barrel when they went in to retrieve the body, he said. Well, This seems a little strange. There were at least two officers with the sheriff's office quoted talking about the barrel. The man who found the body before sheriff's divers were brought in, Gordon Childress, said, quote, There was no doubt in my mind, I am 100% positive that it was an old burn barrel or something of that nature. You know, metal rusted 55-gallon type drum that the body was in, end quote. Jenny Edwards says, quote, my diver said there was a barrel. The sheriff's diver said there was a barrel. Not only that, Debbie had a barrel in her yard. It disappeared. End quote. This is Jenny recalling that Debbie had a 55 gallon drum type barrel on her property sitting right near the cabin.
2: Well, this is going to start making you think if you're the family, what the hell is wrong with the police officers? Why are they lying about this item? So,
1: Chief Sheriff's Detective Jack Watts says this this is verbatim in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. Quote In my opinion, and the opinions of some of the investigators, what appeared to be a barrel to some of the divers could have been Debbie's jacket, which may have ballooned out as she was lying at that angle in the bottom of the pond. There was never a barrel touched by any of the divers according to their statements. Uh, Most definitely by none of our divers did we ever touch a barrel, end quote.
2: Even though we have two statements about a barrel. Okay. Yeah,
1: so something doesn't add up here. He's pointing out that no one touched a barrel, and that would go along with all of the statements and everything that was quoted before. No one has ever said that they touched a barrel, only people saying that they saw a barrel. He's pointing out that it could have been an optical illusion, (laughs) right (laughs) now Gordon Childress, the man who originally found the body admitted that his visibility was limited as the pond was quite dirty, but he does say on record time and time again, I thought I saw a barrel. This was the theory that was adopted by the sheriff's office investigators where they're saying, Hey, the pond was dirty. So they concluded that the barrel was an optical illusion caused by Debbie's large, unfastened jacket floating around her in a a semicircle in the dark, murky waters of that pond.
2: Here's a couple things I wonder. Okay, one, if there was just a body in this pond, wouldn't the body then at some point go to the surface because of the gases and stuff inside the body? But if you have this barrel, maybe the barrel would be helping to keep the body down. She was
1: wearing a good amount of clothing. I don't know if here's some difficult things about this case. Mm -hmm. First, we don't know when she went into the water, regardless of how she got there. We don't know when she went in. Right. And I would imagine the bloating, the gases, that stuff, it takes a bit of time. And of course, you're right. Most of the time, a body will rise to the top. I don't know if all of this clothing, the heavy clothing, if it absorbed the water, if it became heavy enough to weight her down. We don't have any statements, however, of anybody saying that she was, you know, tethered to anything in the pond or in this barrel to keep her underwater, to keep her submerged. So that part's all very difficult. The other thing that's super difficult and I, you know, people might get crazy with me here, but. We're going to hover around this barrel a lot during this episode because, to me, this is the centerpiece of the case. Because no matter whether people saw a barrel or not, everyone agrees that when the detectives... The detectives return to the scene on Thursday, the day after, to retrieve a barrel. Right. That's agreed upon. When they get there, there is no barrel to be found anywhere. That's also agreed upon.
2: Now, you wonder... Is there somebody at the scene that's responsible for this murder that believes that this barrel is a a vital piece of evidence and takes the barrel? Why they wouldn't take it the first day doesn't make any sense to me. But then to give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt, we don't have a great understanding of this pond and we know that they're draining it two to three feet Is it possible that when they were searching for the barrel, they just weren't capable of finding it?
1: Okay, so you bring up several good points, and you brought this up before we went to the break.
2: Well, that's what I do on the show is I bring up these amazing points.
1: Your point being before the break that if there was a barrel, if she's found inside the barrel in the pond, it has to be murder or foul play. She doesn't commit suicide, put herself into a barrel. She doesn't accidentally drown and magically end up inside of the barrel. Well, even without too much of a coincidence.
2: Yeah. But even without the barrel, I think me and you would both lean to this looks more like a homicide.
1: If there were no barrel present, I could be easily convinced that this was an accidental drowning. Hmm. Now with the barrel present, I go back to what you said before the break. It has to be some type of foul play. So then the thought is, well, did someone come back and retrieve the barrel? And that's exactly what her mother, Debbie, has insinuated over the years, that someone who murdered her daughter came back to the property and removed the barrel so that it could not incriminate them. So that maybe it would be determined to be an accidental death and there would be no homicide investigation. Right. Interestingly enough, though, you also point out something that just seems outwardly bizarre. Why wouldn't they just take the barrel with them on the day that they recovered the body? The sheriff's office. Why not just take it with you? Well, I can, I can give them a little leeway here and say, all right, well, maybe they didn't have proper equipment to drain the pond. And maybe they decided that the easiest way to remove the barrel was to, in fact, drain the pond. However, you are responding To a call where someone is telling you, we have located a body of a person. We've located a body on the property of a person that was previously reported as missing inside of a pond. You're not going to bring any kind of any kind of equipment to drain the pond with you or at least call it in and say, hey, we're going out to the scene to see if we find a body. Could you get to work on bringing in this draining equipment? Well, they didn't take
2: her serious when they said that she was missing.
1: It, so that part seems like a big misstep by the sheriff's department. Here's the other thing. Okay. Maybe you decide that tomorrow we have to come back tomorrow to drain the pond, retrieve the barrel, put a freaking officer at the scene and guard the damn scene.
2: Yeah. Cause well, one, what if do you we-
1: found a body in a car and you couldn't determine if it was a homicide or an accident or what have you, you would remove the vehicle that day with the body or at the very least put an officer at the scene so you could retrieve it
2: later. None of this was done. Well, and John Douglas would tell you, look, this is a remote scene. So the fact that it's a remote scene, I'm, I'm putting some officers around this area to see if anybody comes by to see if we found the body yet. Because like we know, killers will return to the crime scene from time to time. When we're working on the show, we do this a lot where we go, oh, well, sometimes if if one of us is is not filling up to the work that day we'll go oh well we'll just get that tomorrow and normally the best work we do is when we just push through no no let's not wait till tomorrow let's get it done today and that's what it seems like this law enforcement did was like oh well they handled her missing person case so in just such a lazy fashion and then to come back and go okay well now that we found her but okay well we'll just clean up this area tomorrow. It makes zero sense to me and if this pond is not that deep why aren't you just removing this barrel? And maybe it's 50 pounds but that's not it's not 500 pounds. It,
1: well, it seems obvious to me that whatever the situation they determine the easiest way to or the best way is what I think I should say. The best way to remove the barrel would be to drain the pond, and again, that's fine. That's well and good. Put an officer at the scene in a car and just sit by the pond for the night. It's very simple, easily done.
2: If they also came back and said, look, we're we're going to come back tomorrow to drain the pond for two reasons. One, to get that barrel, but two, we're going to see if we can find any other evidence within the pond, and that would make a lot more sense to me, but it doesn't even seem like they were looking for other instruments that could have been used in the, in the death of Debbie
1: per the investigation. Investigators were not able to locate anyone who saw Debbie after she left work on the 26th. So this helped them to fix her date of death on that particular day, since she failed to show up for work the next morning. It's not at all clear whether they processed her car and her house for fingerprints. We don't know if they checked into her phone records or interviewed her coworkers and friends. There's also no discussion of whether there was any suspicion of her boyfriend or whether he was looked at at all. Either very little investigation was actually done in Debbie Wolf's case or very little was made public about what was done.
2: Right, and you would think that we'd have maybe, we have the family questioning law enforcement, so we'd think that we'd get some more information from her mother saying, okay, well, maybe they didn't publicize that they They searched her house, but they did search her house.
1: Well, it's going to be basically just a straight down the middle disagreement between the two sides, between Debbie's family and the sheriff's department. Now, we mentioned earlier footprints or possible footprints. Gordon Childress said he saw two sets of footprints on the bottom of the pond. He says they led to the direction of the body. Keep in mind, though, he's also said that the pond was very dirty. It was it was very you know, murky water, dirty water. He had a hard time seeing, uh, now bear in mind that this pond is about five and a half feet deep at its deepest point. So this is, this is where you go. All right. Someone could walk into the pond and reach the spot where Debbie was found. So she could have easily been placed there. But if there were two sets of footprints on the bottom of the pond, you have to wonder what does this mean? Does this mean that there were two perpetrators placing her and the barrel in the pond or was this one perpetrator placing these items in the pond? And then the second set is the footprints back out of the pond. Right. But hold your questions because none of this is straightforward and it's about to get even more confusing. The sheriff's office spokesman, this is Harold little told The Asheville Citizen Times that a sheriff's deputy at the scene asked Childress to show him the footprints, and Childress could not find them. And Little went on to say that the bottom of the pond was not actually mud or silt that would show footprints, but moss on which footprints did not make an impression. So footprints would not be possible at the bottom of the pond. So law enforcement 100% does not back up the existence of these footprints. Now, Childress says Debbie was in the barrel. He's the first diver, the friend of the family. Reports were that a barrel was seen by two divers, sheriff's divers. Then it's reported to the media by the sheriff's office investigator that there was no barrel. Of course, the key question is what did the law enforcement divers who went down and got Debbie out of the pond actually see? Because whether or not there was a barrel really changes everything in this case. The Asheville Citizen Times reported, quote, It was possible Debbie was playing with her dogs and accidentally fell into the pond. She was wearing an army field jacket and it may have become waterlogged, causing her to sink below the surface. Investigators also say, She may have been standing on ice when it gave way, causing her to enter the water, or she may have fallen into the pond and panicked. Chief Detective Charles Smith said, we have no idea how she got into the water. Smith also stated that Debbie could have suffered some other kind of accident. Once she was in the pond, in the dark, in the freezing water, she became disoriented and moved away from rather than toward the pond's edge. So the sheriff's office couldn't come up with a great reason that Debbie would have entered the pond. But once she was in there, they believed that she became frightened and disoriented in the water. And instead of moving toward the shallow edge, she went out deeper where she became a victim of this immersion syndrome. So there's still a lot of questions in regards to this explanation, right? Yeah. The pond is only five and a half feet deep. You could walk into it. And out of it. And a better description of the pond is as follows The water at the edge of the pond is only about an inch or two deep. The bottom gently slopes, and the pond is only knee deep, five feet from the edge. Debbie was found 30 feet from the bank. So, given the gentle grade, she would have been able to stand up and walk out of the pond if she fell in, unless this is a Ray Rivera situation where. God only knows how she fell, and she magically fell into the center of the pond. Right. Knee deep at five feet in, inches deep around the, the very edge of the pond. So if she fell in by accident, I don't know. I It just makes very little sense to me how one could end up working their way deeper rather than just standing up or even getting on your hands and knees and crawling out. Yeah, it's just... Such
2: a bad explanation
1: that makes this also very difficult is the 26th of December. It was reported that it was only 25 degrees or so that day. So frigid for North Carolina, this will also provide a possible explanation. The sheriff's office maintained that it was possible that she was playing with her dogs, perhaps running with them, or she tried to help one of the dogs and stepped onto very thin ice, maybe she thought it was thicker ice, and fell through and then drowned in the pond.
2: Yeah, it's possible that you would let your dogs out and maybe they would get into a situation where you would have to help them. So I could see that being an accidental death. But again, the the size of the pond, like you said, at, at some point you can just stand up.
1: Well, of course, the family contends that Debbie was murdered. They don't agree With the sheriff's office, they challenged the autopsy findings. The family says it was murder and a bumbling, inept, or maybe even corrupt investigation got it all wrong. Jenny Edwards was not happy with the sheriff's office, and she let them know it on the public front. The Fayetteville Observer said, quote, unanswered questions, contradictions, and the victim's mother adamant refusal to accept theories voiced by law enforcement authorities have shrouded the death in mystery.
2: Well, we bash law enforcement enough, so let's uh, give them a little credit because even they knew they were outmanned, so they call in the SBI.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's so much a question of being outmanned or just doing due diligence, a little checks and balances. If you watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode, keep in mind it's a great show. Captain loves it. Colonel loves it. Everyone loves it. It's a shame we're not hosting the show. On Netflix. However, yeah, it's a,
2: it's, a, it's actually pathetic that we're not the the co-host. That's
1: still one of the great unsolved mysteries of our lifetimes. Maybe next season. However, keep in mind when you watch that show, specifically the ones from the, the 80s and 90s, You, when you view a case, for the most part, you're getting the nine or 10-minute version of the case. That's why you step into the garage to get the rest of the story. Something that was not covered in the Unsolved Mysteries episode was the sheriff calling in the SBI. So on January 5th, note that date, January 5th, it was reported that Cumberland County Sheriff Otis Jones requested the help of the State Bureau of Investigation. Specifically, he requested that the SBI look into his department's handling of the Debbie Wolf investigation. This is extremely unconventional, especially given that the investigation was only days old at this point. Sheriff spokesman Harold Little said the department was bringing in the SBI assistance. The uh, Fayetteville observer reported that SBI agent Marshall Evans was given the case review assignment. He talked to County detectives, family members and others. He visited the scene several times and although Evans wasn't able to determine exactly what happened to Debbie, he told the Observer that he does not believe that the death was murder.
2: Interesting find there by SBI. But uh, I go back to her personal life. Do we have any indication that there's violence in any relationship that she had, or, or that, or do we know of any questionable? questionable suspect that lives in that area that would know that she was out there living alone.
1: So that's an interesting point there, captain,
2: as far as her relationship
1: goes with her boyfriend, serious boyfriend, whatever label you want to put on it. There seems to be zero suspicion by the family, friends, the sheriff's office and the media regarding the boyfriend. There does seem to be a little suspicion from family and possibly the media regarding the, one or two of her co-workers and we'll get into that but we all before we get into that I want to go through some more of the family's allegations specifically Jenny's her mother's so these are the things that Jenny Edwards has alleged were hinky about her daughter and the scene and the way the investigation was going down you know when they went through Debbie's home these were some things that they found that they thought pointed more towards foul play now this item was not in any of the original reports but Jenny says that drag marks were found down into the pond these apparently were observed by Childress the diver and reported by Jenny or reported to Jenny by Kevin Gordon this is interesting to me when we were talking about the footprints earlier I'm thinking okay if there's a barrel these footprints if they existed at all, are only good in my mind if they are accompanied by drag marks. These alleged drag marks have become part of the narrative of Debbie's case but have never, ever been mentioned by law enforcement or anyone other than Debbie's family and friends. Jenny also points out that the driver's seat in Debbie's car was pushed all the way back. Debbie was only five foot three inches tall. So she would sit with the seat pulled forward to drive. And her mother says that Debbie would never adjust the seat because it was sticky and it was hard to move. She goes on to state that Debbie was found wearing clothes that she and her family did not recognize, including a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt that her friends, her boyfriend and family says they had never, ever seen. Jenny said that the clothes that she was wearing were the wrong size for her daughter. The jacket she was wearing was a men's size, small field jacket and looked brand new, but had no tags on it. This field jacket is a weird thing because Debbie's boyfriend, former army criminal investigation division agent, Steve McDonald said he did not give this jacket to Debbie, and he had never seen it before. And he goes on to say that he is positive he would know if anyone else had given the jacket to Debbie. So no one knows where this jacket came from or why she would be wearing it or need it at all as she had a field jacket of her brother's on the hook inside of her cabin when her body was found.
2: This is equal to the barrel to me where it points to homicide.
1: Almost where if you could go, okay, regardless if there was a barrel or not, maybe I could get on board and believe that this jacket ballooned out and caused some kind of optical illusion. Right. But then again, where the hell did the jacket come from?
2: Yeah. And again, we don't know what the search of the house presented I would think even if the cops searched the house, but there was definitely a struggle, there was evidence in there that the family would be able to come forward and say, look, there was a struggle inside the house. I don't even know if that's the case. I you This, this crime could have taken place somewhere else, and this individual could have known where she lived and just said, hey, I'm going to dump her in her own pond. That's where I'm going to get rid of the body.
1: Now... This next item are a pair of brown corduroy pants that Debbie was wearing. Um, Again, the family says these pants were way too big, that they would have fit somebody approximately six foot tall. They go on to say that she was wearing a bra that was way too large for her, uh, both in cup size and around the, the body. These next two items, I really think we can toss these out. You know, um, I'm throwing in my own little opinion as we go through some of these. One is, is the pair of Nike tennis shoes that Debbie was wearing. The family says these were too big, that they were at least a size, if not two sizes, too big. We do have the, the sheriff's office investigator, Jack Watts, who is on camera on record saying we do know for a fact that the tennis shoes we had on were her tennis shoes. He says, we have photos of her with those tennis shoes on prior to her death. I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and believe the officer Watts there. I don't believe he would go out of his way to be on camera, on mic and say we have pictures of her wearing these shoes. The next item was it stated that Debbie was clean, that there was no noticeable dirt on her sneakers or shoes or clothing. Uh, and they questioned How could she have been in this dirty pond for six days without being dirty that the divers that found her were their their articles, their diving gear, everything was extremely dirty when they recovered her and brought her to the edge. I don't know what the hell that's supposed to prove that that whole statement really confuses me because we know she was in the water, right? The water was dirty or it wasn't dirty, whatever, how, how she was clean. I don't know but we one we know she was in the water and two we know she was in the water longer than the divers were so i i don't know what that is supposed to to point out here
2: yeah and again but like i said if if you start thinking you know a little outside the box and you go well what if yeah what if she went home with a, one of her coworkers the, the the murder the attack happens there then she's in their house for who knows how long. And then they start searching for her. Maybe they go out to the property, but maybe she's not in the pond at that time. And she's not in that pond until the day that they, they discover her. Well, it's, it's possible.
1: Another item of concern is a, what is called a summer weight uniform. So remember she was a nurse. So these are scrubs. A summer weight uniform was found lying on the kitchen floor inside the cabin. One, of course, an odd location to just find, you know, pants and a shirt lying in the middle of the kitchen floor. But the family says that she would have been wearing a long sleeve shirt and not lightweight uh, uniform in the winter months. And this is kind of backed up by the coworker. Remember, we mentioned she was having lunch with a Roger Rushing He backed this up by saying that she was definitely wearing a long sleeve shirt at work that day. Whatever this uniform was that the family and Roger Rushing believes that she was wearing on the 26th was never found at her cabin or in her home. Mm. So either they're wrong and she was in fact wearing the uniform that was found on her kitchen floor or there's something terribly wrong with this whole crime scene. One thing that I think is is maybe a big deal here, Captain, it is reported, and this seems to be agreed upon by both the family and the sheriff's office, so let's examine this thing here. It's reported that beer cans littered the yard of Debbie's yard, and the family says and points out that Debbie was neat, tidy, clean. She wouldn't have littered in her yard. She... She wants to live out in the beauty of nature, so she's not just going to willy-nilly throw beer cans out in the yard.
2: She's not going to be a giant piece of shit that litters.
1: These were found around the area where her vehicle was parked. The other thing that the family points out is, okay, if you want to believe that she threw them there, well, that's not the kind of beer that she drank. So they're, they're kind of doubling down on this idea that she wouldn't have thrown these beer cans
2: in the yard well, now that you're not able to click the barrel, you have a bunch of extra space in your evidence locker. Collect these cans so one day that we can test them.
1: Well, the tox, remember the toxicology screening on Debbie came back as clean. Yeah. So she wasn't drinking or doing any type of drugs leading up to her death. So these beer cans are all Another big part of the mystery. Of course, her family says that this all adds up, plus the barrel, all adds up to pointing to foul play and murder in this well,
2: case. Well, and going through my research, uh, you know, we, we we share outlines and stuff. And, and on your outline, you have the hat, which I did not find. Can you tell me about this hat?
1: Yeah, there was another potential clue found, according to the family. A friend of Debbie's, this is Franz Schoff who went to feed the dogs after Debbie died, after she was found. This person found a wool stocking cap that everyone says belonged to Debbie and found this hat in the mud at the opposite end of the pond. So you have the cabin, you have uh, a little bit of a distance, then you have this pond she's found kind of in the middle of it. On the opposite side of the pond is where this hat was located. So I don't know what this could possibly point to. We don't know how or where she got into the water from, but I think at least this begs the question, how thorough was the pond and the property searched if this hat was still lying there more than a week after Debbie was located? So, I, I mean, the hat could go right. either way, right? She she possibly was wearing the hat, took it off, or it floated away.
2: Or it fell off when they were taking her body to the water.
1: Exactly. But again, it also, it, to me, it just brings up the idea that it wasn't an extremely thorough search of the property. Or when things were found, they weren't noted or taken in as evidence. Again,
2: Again, we don't know the exact size of the pond. But if you're able to drain it a few feet, you think that we're at least having officers walk around the pond to see if we find any more evidence. It just seems like a very lazy, like you said, lazy investigation, not a thorough investigation. And I almost think they only called in CBI just to kind of save their hide.
1: It's possible, but I'm still going to give them credit for doing so. I think that, look, uh, I've reviewed a lot of people who have posted comments online on other people's message boards regarding this case. And a lot of people seem to believe that the, this is, look, maybe in some cases I can believe it, but I can't believe it here. And in most cases, I don't believe it, Captain, this this following statement. The sheriff's office know who did this and they're covering it up most of the time that is just freaking false. It's not true at all that these collectively as a department. We're all going to put our asses on the line because somebody we know killed somebody bogus. The other thing too, is we have the coroner's report. The autopsy states it Mm -hmm. was a drowning cause of drowning undetermined. So the coroner's corrupt too, knows who did it and choosing to cover it up. They brought in, This other, the State Investigative Bureau to double-check their work when they were covering up for a friend of the department's? It just, that doesn't make any sense. If you think that the sheriff's office got it wrong, it's just because they got it wrong, not because they are covering for a buddy of the department.
2: And again, one of the reasons why I think they could call in CBI is there's somebody that they knew that used to work in the department so we're going to call this guy in. He's going to act like he's double checking us, but he's really going to be um essentially our 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 friendly alibi to say that well we didn't do anything wrong here, even though they were just lazy about the whole investigation.
1: That's possible and and I don't I don't have any reason to firmly disagree with that. I just think we have a situation where the sheriff's being incredibly responsible in in saying, look, this woman and her family are challenging our findings and our investigation. Let's bring in a, you know, a state agency to at least take a look at this thing. And if we're wrong, maybe they can find something we didn't find. Or if we're right, She's going to get the same answers that we already gave her, and hopefully that will give the family some kind of satisfaction, some kind of closure. Look, if the family's wrong, you know, we're beating up on the sheriff's office here a lot, but there's a chance the family could be wrong. If the family's wrong in this situation, they're grieving people that are trying to understand the bizarre, mysterious death of a loved one. It's a very difficult thing to process. On the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, besides the barrel, probably the biggest mystery in this case would be the phone call or message that was found on Debbie's answering machine. Oh,
2: I love these. That's why one of the reasons why uh, I miss answering machines.
1: So Jenny later told this story to the Fayetteville Examiner and says, when John and Kevin went over to Debbie's to look for her. They noticed that there was a message blinking on her machine. For those that have never experienced the wonder of an answering machine, that's how you knew you had a message. When you came home, the little light would be blinking, and you go, oh, boy, somebody called me. And you'd hit the button, and it would play the message. Jenny says that, uh, quote, what they heard was a stranger's voice on the tape. The two then really became concerned. The message had been left earlier that day. The voice was a man calling from the veterans hospital. This would be where Debbie worked to see how Debbie was doing. The man's message indicated that Debbie had missed many days of work. This struck Jenny Edwards as odd because she knew this was not true. At the time of the message that the message was left, Debbie had only missed. She had not missed days of work, only a few hours at best. All right, let's dissect this a little bit here, because one, could the meaning of the message be misconstrued by these two individuals? You've missed a lot of days. No, by the time we're listening to this message, she's only missed one day. She didn't show up today, and she's only missed a couple of hours. Is it possible that the person calling and leaving the message is referring to her work history? You've worked here for two years is what our records indicate Did right. she worked there two years. Did she miss several days over the course of those two years? In some work environments, that's not acceptable. Right. The other thing.
2: In the garage, it's not acceptable.
1: Right. The other thing that we need to keep in mind, they, they did a great job on Unsolved Mysteries of reenacting the message on the answering machine, but. That's not like an actual recording that they're playing. From my understanding, the only two people who have ever heard this message was those two man, men on that day, John and Kevin, who went to look for Debbie. They played the message, erased the message. So I'm not saying that they didn't hear the message. I'm not questioning that. I, would, I wouldn't I would go that far to to suggest that these people would make this up. But what I do find odd is Jenny's statement to the newspaper is they became very concerned. Well, maybe they did, but your other statement was they didn't find anything wrong with the cabin. They assumed that Debbie had left, possibly left with somebody in a hurry, so they fed the dogs, turned off the heater, and left the house. Right. So which was it? Were they concerned, or was everything just normal?
2: I think the tough thing here is the location of the cabin. I mean, there's not a lot of neighbors, so we don't have a lot of eyewitnesses that saw her coming into the property with somebody following her, or maybe that she was at the property with a different vehicle, meaning that she was there with somebody else. But we have clear-cut eyewitness accounts saying that she was at work, and then we obviously have her punching out of work for that day. So it's very difficult.
1: It is very difficult. I can say this uh, regarding the voicemail or the answering machine message that it looks like law enforcement was able to determine who, in fact, left the message and did question this individual. According to Jenny, this individual did work with Debbie. Uh, The family believes that he was one of two men. That were interested in Debbie, that was trying to pursue kind, some kind of relationship with Debbie, refuse their advances as they, this guy was looked at. Jenny says that he did not want to take a polygraph test, but the sheriff's office also say, you know, we talked to everyone that the family asked us to interview. And we couldn't find anything in the course of those interviews that would lead us to believe anything other than it was an accidental drowning. We couldn't find anything at the scene that led us to believe anything other than an accidental drowning.
2: Yeah, but they're staying in that and also omitting any signs of footprints, drag marks, or a barrel.
1: If any of that existed, again, it's 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 very confusing. Because you have one group, one camp saying we have these pieces of evidence and the other camp saying none of that stuff ever existed. The tricky thing, though, is I go back to the beginning of this case. You have two officers on record talking about a barrel. You have the department who decides we're going to come back tomorrow and collect a barrel. There seemed to be, at one point, regardless if there was a barrel or not, a collective agreement by the sheriff's department that a barrel existed. So that part is all very confusing to me. What Jenny Edwards believes and what her family believes is kind of a theory as to what possibly happened is that somehow Debbie was taken from her property held captive for hours, probably days, and killed in a manner that didn't leave much in the way of detection. Probably my guess would be smothered and then placed into the barrel and dragged into the pond, placed in the pond. The sheriff's department removes the body and whoever put her there came back and took the barrel away in the middle of the night. There are a lot of things that have to line up for that to be possible. Is it impossible? No. Certainly not impossible. And again, for me, Captain, all I can do is label this a mysterious, unexplained death because we don't have any definitive answers or definitive proof or evidence for me to lean one way or the other. If there was a barrel there, if she was found in a barrel, I'm saying murder. I'm saying foul play.
2: I'll go one step step further. I'm with you. If there's a barrel, definitely this is a homicide. It needs to be investigated as such, but it's the clothing. Get rid of that barrel, fine. You can't get rid of the fact that she's found in clothes that are not recognizable to anybody, friends, family, or loved ones.
1: And I think you're spot on there, Captain. And it's just like what we saw in the Asia Degree case. If you, cannot, if you cannot find a reasonable explanation why she had a photo of an unknown, unidentified girl in her possession, then you cannot explain why she disappeared or why she left her home that night. This is the same thing. If there's a barrel, that barrel must be explained. There must be a reason why that barrel exists and how she ended up in it. The other thing, you're right. Take it a step further. Where did this clothing come from? She didn't just drive home on the 26th and go out and buy a bunch of clothes that are way too big for her that she didn't need, put them on and fall into the middle of a pond and drown. So it's all very difficult. I think that I think that the family is right to keep pursuing this. I think the sheriff's office was right to call in another agency, a state agency, to take a look at it. It's just a shame that here we are all these years later with a very uncomfortable uneasy feeling of we don't have any real answers we don't have a great understanding for what happened to this young woman with a promising future i think as the fayetteville observer pointed out i think they nailed it when they said there are many questions in this case for which law enforcement officers admit they do not have the answers
2: For everything true crime garage check us out at truecrimegarage.com and you can follow us on instagram twitter or facebook at true crime garage
1: and make sure you join us back here in the garage next week for a new off the record and a new case until then be good be kind and don't let it.